Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Oh, we've got something really exciting today, haven't we, Alina? Of course, always. We always have exciting guests on. This is true. So today we have the fab Michael Schumann, who is a historian, journalist and author. He's written for Time Magazine and the Wall Street Journal, amongst other publications. He's also written books on Chinese history with his new book, Superpower Interrupted, which will be due to be published in June of this year. So welcome, Michael. Thanks a lot for inviting me on. Oh, no, thank you for joining us. Oh, so this is going to be interesting. Michael, you're in Beijing at the moment, aren't you? I am in Beijing. And how are things I... on Corona lockdown? Are you still locked down in Beijing? Uh, we have, uh, we're not in lockdown like we were. Things have loosened up quite a bit, but there's still a remarkable amount of restrictions, uh, on movement here. Uh, they haven't, other parts of the country are actually, from what I understand, a little looser than, than Beijing, probably because it's from the capital. So it's, it's still, there's still a lot of hurdles getting around. You still have your temperature checked everywhere. Uh, it's still difficult to get in and out of buildings and apartment complexes and things and uh even getting actually harder to get into restaurants uh restaurants want health checks and things like that now too so life is not normal it's closed um speaking of i've got to ask you this because it's something that's cropping up a lot in the press here but i think it's something that culturally we we don't really have any idea what it actually is so the wet markets are open again aren't they the wet markets are, are opening up, and this is a very common part of, of life in China. It's basically just like a fresh food market. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing particularly interesting about them beyond, uh, you know, the fact that a lot of them will have certain types of wildlife that you would not see in regular food markets elsewhere in the world. Uh, and, you know, of course, that's where there's suspicion that this is where this whole virus came from, that it jumped from from wild animals to people in, in a wet market. Uh, supposedly, the government is going to get more control on this going forward. And, and actually, they just announced this week that they're, they're uh, recategorizing cats and dogs so that they're no longer going to be considered as, as a form of food. Uh, so... We'll see what impact this has going forward. There, there's, you know, in, in China, what the what's written on paper in the rule books and what happens actually on the ground in real life sometimes don't quite match exactly right. So, so we'll see. That's amazing news, I've got to say, because that makes me really happy. Because obviously, being a dog owner and Alex being a cat owner, yeah, this makes me very happy. But like you say, it's a, there's a long 
uh, there's a big gap to bridge between putting legislation on paper and reality. So we'll just have to see how it pans out. Listen, guys, Michael, you're here to actually talk about China's contribution. We can talk about what's going on in the world right now for hours and hours of what's happening in China. However much I'd love to, I want to hear Michael's uh, point, next points about um, the China's contribution to the world. So we have five points to discuss with you. Let's jump straight into the first one, which is the great philosophers. So can you tell us a bit more about that? So, so in, in the West, we look back on, to a great degree, the, the old Greek philosophers as, they, as you know, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, that these people kind of form the, the philosophical basis for Western civilization to a, a great degree. Well, China has its own version of these great philosophers who had a very, very similar impact, uh, not just on China, but actually on, on the whole region here in, in East Asia. And uh, interestingly enough, the some of them actually lived around the same time as ancient Greece. So you had this going on uh, concurrently in very different parts of the world. Uh, the most famous person that most people know, of course, is Confucius, and he was the most influential. Uh, and, you know, his, his ideas eventually came to influence everything from governance policy and governing ideology to uh, relations within families and family rituals and education systems and, and the role of women and ideas about the individual and society and moral codes and all this stuff. And, and a, he, um, uh, it's, and it's, you know, to a great extent, it's, it's, there's still, you still find this, this influence today and, and, and not just in China, but around the whole region, Korea, Japan, Vietnam, other parts of Asia have been very highly influenced by these ideas. He's not the only one. Uh, there's also the, the thinkers of Taoism, uh, an, another uh, philosophy that had tremendous uh, influence on religious practice and art and literature and all kinds of things. Uh, and so you had this body of thinkers that created this corpus of work that has been built on over the last, you know, uh, 2,500 you know, 2, years uh, with all kinds of new, new thinking and new interpretations and reinterpretations and reinterpretations into this great body of literature uh, that, and that's still happening. Uh, that really forms the basis of, to a great degree of East Asian, Chinese and East Asian civilization. Okay. Um, your next point, which I... This one was really interesting for me. Um, you selected a year, um, didn't you, for us, which is the most important year that you didn't know was important. Right. We all think of years. I mean, you and I could come up with a bunch of years that pop into people's head. You think of, okay, what are the most important years in history? I don't know, 1492 yeah. uh, is one. I, I'm American, so we would say 1776. Um, but one that I think is incredibly important, and I don't think most people would ever put on the list, is 221 B.C. So what happened in 221 B.C.? That, that's when uh, the, the king of a state called Qin uh, unified uh, what was then a very, uh, de uh, uh, very um, disunited China into something like a unified empire, and he created the Qin dynasty. And the Qin dynasty was not the first dynasty, and it was actually one of the shortest-lived major dynasties. It only lasted 15 years. 
Uh, but the reason it's so important is that it was the first time that China became, became a unified empire. Before that, Chinese political systems had been much more decentralized, something people often use the word feudal. It's not really not quite right, but you had kind of a royal house and you then you had vassals and barons and different 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 types of relationships with the center that that was very uh, decentralized but uh there the, the the king of Qin, who then became the first emperor and we many people know the first emperor because he was a guy who was buried with the terracotta warriors okay yeah um yeah so he 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 didn't like this. He he thought that this type of decentralized political system led to chaos. So he changed the nature of government into a a, a centralized state where you had local affiliate, you know, provincial and local governments that were basically run from the center by a bureaucracy. And he brought in a lot of standardization things like. He standardized the Chinese script, for for instance. He standardized weights and measures and coinage and things like that. So he he started to put China together. So you can almost make a case that there wasn't a China before that, and then when after the Qin, there was something like a China. Um, and what's amazing about it is that, to a great degree, it's still around. I mean, obviously, the, this China today does not look at all like like the China of, of uh, 221 BC. Uh, but the idea that you have a centralized state in this same geographic region that has that that basically has this uh, a linked kind of historical uh, narrative through all that time that that we're still dealing with today is is pretty remarkable when you think about history. I mean, Rome Rome is a political entity. Obviously, it's gone along. Been, been gone for a long time. Uh, but to a certain extent, what was done in 2221 BC is still sort of around. One of the motivations that I had in writing my, my new book is, is kind of, I, I think that because in, in the US and, and, and Europe, we tend to write about China within our own historical context, mm. that most writing that people read about China is really of a relatively modern period because that, that was when the you know the West started having direct links with with China. So uh, I think the the you know but China of course has a three thousand years of actually recorded history uh, where there's actual writing about it, uh, and the history of course goes back longer than that. And and I feel that a lot of people just don't get this stuff uh, actually. And and uh, but. It's it's an immensely important narrative that greatly influences the world today. Because if you want to understand China, then you need to go back before the confrontation with the West uh, and and learn about where China has come from and how that shapes the Chinese thinking about the world today. Because for the Chinese, their confrontation with the rest, with the West, which is about two two hundred years old, is is relatively you know. New, quote unquote. You know, when you're dealing with a history that that's long, that's two two hundred years doesn't really sound like a whole, it doesn't feel like a whole lot. Uh, so that's how they, that's that's how the, the Chinese see it. It's just one part of this massive narrative. I mean, I completely and totally utterly agree. I think I'm going to have to buy your book and do some more reading into into uh, some of the history because. My knowledge starts from the Opium Wars, which was again about two hundred years ago. So yeah, that's you know that's exactly that's where a lot of people start, you know, and and we'll, and and that's the image that people have of China as being a relatively, you know, weak empire. 
uh, and but that was um, again that's two two hundred years ago. Um, you know, the relations with the West actually before the Opium War were significantly different. Where you know China really had the upper hand. I mean, the the Portuguese were the first to get to China directly, and that was the early 16th century. Uh, and basically, until the you know. The Chinese really maintained their upper hand in, in dealing with the West. Uh, so even for most of the period that the West had relations with China, from the Chinese perspective, they've actually been the dominant player in the relationship. Sorry, Michael, you've gone really quiet again. I wonder why. I wonder why that is. I'm not moving. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the yeah. next point. Yeah. So the yeah. next, so we're, let's move on to the next point. We've got the creation of East Asia. And I'm actually really excited for you to talk a little bit more about this uh, point. Sorry. Um, right. So, you know, we think of East Asia as a certain, you know, part of the world, same way we think of Western Europe or something like that, right? Or, or uh, the Middle East, that kind of thing. So what makes East, East Asia East Asia? Uh, and to a great degree, it's, um, it's Chinese civilization and the influence of Chinese civilization. Because what happened, you know, going back uh, now, you know, 1500, 1800 years, uh, China was always the most advanced civilization in the region. So when people in other societies, in, in Korea and Japan and elsewhere, when they were looking to uh, set up governments and their own institutions, uh, where were they going to look? Well, they looked to China. So you had a tremendous amount of copying that went on, uh, to varying degrees, of course, depending on the place. Uh, but you had, uh, you know, so, so, so the, these other societies were borrowing things like uh, government institutions, uh, education systems, legal codes. And I think most importantly, they also borrowed Chinese characters. They, when they started writing, they started writing in Chinese and Chinese characters. And of course, with characters came Chinese literature, Chinese ideas, Chinese philosophy. So you had the elite in East Asia that were basically reading the same books and, and the same history and the same ideas. And this, this created East Asia as something of a, of a distinct you know, a cultural zone. Uh, and it's 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 how kind of East Asia became East East Asia. Uh, it's because of the influence of, of China, which is still is still felt today. You know the the you know the Japanese and especially and the Koreans a certain amount still use Chinese characters in their writing. Uh, and you know it's even though they have their own they have their own scripts and everything now, but it it's so the influence kind of remains. Um, and it's, it's an arts, it's a temple architecture. Why, when you go to temples in Japan and Korea and China, do they look kind of similar? Well, that's because they were borrowing Chinese, uh, architectural styles. So when, to regularly, when we think of East Asia, what's East Asia? East Asia is something of a Chinese civilizational zone. That's incredible. Um, something else that you've credited China with, which is your next point, um, is the formation of a global economy. Tell us about that, because that's really interesting as well. We, we tend to think in the West of this idea of the global economy forming and globalization when, when you know, the Portuguese found their way to Asia and you had these 
these uh, uh, links of trade stretching all the way from Western Europe to East Asia, to China and Japan. Of course, that was an uh, immensely important development in world history. But if you go before that, you, what you'll find is that there were, there were already very, very extensive links of trade that were linking you know, Western Asia and the, and the Red Sea, the Mediterranean world and Africa with South Asia and China. And that these had been around for, for, you know, at that point, centuries and centuries and centuries and becoming stronger and stronger. Uh, of course, one of them we know very famous being the Silk Road, which was the overland route between China uh, and, and, and uh, Western, Western Asia. Uh, which was already, you know, around 2,000 years ago. Um, and then there were also the maritime routes, which actually became more important because you could ship a lot more by boat uh, than you could by camel. So the maritime routes is, uh, became more and more and more advanced as shipbuilding became more and more advanced. Uh, and so you would have you had very well-established shipping networks going from the southern coast of China through Southeast Asia to India, into the Persian Gulf, into the Red Sea. And these existed long before the Portuguese ever found, found their way into the Indian Ocean. And China, because it was always a, such a gargantuan economy, was kind of the beating heart of this system, or at least one of the major beating hearts of, of the system. You know, we, we think today, we call China an emerging market, an emerging economy. That's because we're we put China in the context of the last two, 200 years when China was relatively weak. They had fallen in, in, into poverty and fallen behind. But that's historically, that's not true about China. China historically has always been one of the world's dominant economies, was a major, major center of, of production and a major consumer because it, they were so wealthy. So, and China sits at one of the, one of the ends of both of these routes. So you had the Silk Road ending in the east in China, and you had these maritime routes ending in the east in China. So it played something of a, of a, of a hinge point between the different trading systems. And, uh, and China, because it, it, you know, again, we think of China as emerging manufacturing power, but China historically has been a major, major manufacturing power, a major source of production, in many cases, a very, very high-tech good. And you could also say something like China was very influential in creating what we, what we would call a global consumer culture with products like silk, but probably most more, even more famously porcelain, which is a Chinese invention. And, you know, now we have must have kind of iconic consumer items like an iPhone. Well, you can think of porcelain as kind of the iPhone of older days where you know, everybody wanted to have Chinese porcelain on their, on their table, all the rich and famous of, of the world in the Middle East and in Europe. So you, you, ended, you had a global trade of this type of product. So, you know, going back several centuries before the Portuguese came to Asia and actually started trading in this stuff. So it's, when, you, when, you, when you put the formation of the global economy in this bigger perspective and you go earlier than kind of the big Western breakthroughs. The, the picture starts to look different and you end up with, a, with more of a China-centric global economy. 
which then kind of implies that what you see happening today is something of a return to what had always been, where you have these, these re-establ- the reestablishment of these old trading lens that had always been a part of the world economy that ended in China, and now you see this kind of re-emerging today. Your fifth point, we're now going to move further forward into time, and we're going to talk more about the opening of China, and what was the most important event since the end of the Second World War? Can you tell us a bit more? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, we can sit here and debate what's the most important event, right, since the end of the Second World War. A lot of people would say the fall of the Soviet Union or the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, you can look at the changing technology, you know, the invention of, let's say, the personal computer would be one. Um, and, but in that mix, you have to consider the opening of China in uh, the 1980s with the reform, the economic reforms led by the paramount leader at the time, Deng Xiaoping, and the impact that that has had on the world since then. It's because of the opening of China that you see, to a great degree, the world taking shape as it is, uh, where products are made and uh, where, they, where they're moving to and from, who has what kind of jobs, what kind of technology we're using, um, where the world's most important consumers are, which means where, where's investment, where's business going. And now increasingly, as China becomes a, a wealthier, wealthier country, the Chinese want a bigger and bigger say in global affairs. So now you're having this economic effect spill over into just about everything else, into diplomacy, into culture. Uh, the Chinese are trying to reassert their role in the world that they, that they had in the past as, as, a, as a major superpower. And, and you know, this, what, what, China's role in the world is going to shape much of our world for the next, who knows, 50 years, 100 years. And this all dates back to these reforms that started uh, in the early 1980s in China. So when, when we look at where the world is going, you have to, you have to look at uh, the changes in China that took place 40 years ago. And the impact that they're having now, the impact that they're that they're probably going to continue to have going forward. Uh, that's I just no, it really is such a good point and so well made. Um, we've been talking about broad strokes, um, but who's your favorite character in Chinese history? An individual that stands out. Um, I am. I will uh, admit to being something of a Confucius fan. Uh, the reason um, 
which is going to be controversial because now a lot of people see Confucius as like this fuddy-duddy, you know, arch conservative uh, who has had a very negative impact on certain aspects of Asian society, like uh, the second class status of women, for instance, he's blamed for being a supporter of authoritarian regimes and things like that. But if you, if you go back and you read the older classical writing in, in Confucianism, mainly, of course, the Analects, which is the most famous Confucian text and one of the most famous philosophical uh, books uh, ever written, um, he did, which he did not write, by the way, though he's often, it's often attributed to him, but it was almost certainly compiled after his death. Uh, you see a very different Confucius who in the context of his own time was actually quite radical. And the Confucian idea is that people should be judged based on their, on their morality and their virtue, not based on their wealth or their birthright, but on, on basically their merit and that merit being based on their, their, their virtuous behavior. And to think of when you think about it at that age, it was a rather radical concept. What it was, you know, who, what family you were born to meant meant everything, and what connections that you had, that kind of thing. Where he was like, no, that's not the way to judge people. So he was an uh, early proponent of, of meritocracy, and he he believed that that virtue had almost an infectious effect that. If you're a, a ruler and you were a benevolent, kind ruler, that, that people would follow you willingly, that you wouldn't actually need things like laws and you wouldn't have to coerce people to do things because you're such a good person that naturally everybody would be drawn to you and, and, and to your ideas. Uh, so this was kind of, you know, crazy stuff 2,500 years ago. And unfortunately, a lot of it has been lost in a lot of later manipulations of Confucian thought. Uh, but when he, it's, he has an, an, an amazingly positive view of humanity in the world, which uh, I think, unfortunately, is often sorely lacking. He's definitely a worthy candidate. Um, one thing we haven't done, because we wanted to talk thematically um, using those broad strokes we haven't talked about literal things but let's just quickly mention chinese inventions that have changed history paper gunpowder oh. um just give us a rundown quickly yeah we I, you know again we we tend to think of china today as kind of like uh, a producer of kind of low-grade products that you find you know in your walmart and they're really cheap and they're not necessarily great quality but that's that's historically, that's not China. China was actually a very high-tech goods producer and was a, was a major source of global innovation. And a lot of products and things that, that have greatly shaped the world originated in China, including paper uh, and uh, gunpowder, as you mentioned. They, interestingly enough, people think that, historians think that uh, Chinese discovered gunpowder when actually trying to find uh, kind of some some kind of uh, potion to uh, uh, bring immortality or at least youth. That was actually may have been the original intention. And they started mixing around different things. And, and uh, there's a very funny passage in an, in an old text that just that warns uh, scientists against mixing things like honey and saltpeter and different things because you could suddenly have an explosion. So it looks like they may have stumbled into it by accident. 
but uh, as I also mentioned, they also produce things. They, they also invented soap. They produced things. They invented porcelain, uh, and which had a major effect on global trade. Uh, and in their own context, you know, they they also in, invented movable type printing and other forms of printing much much earlier than Europe, which had a very big impact on literacy uh, in China and the region. So when you look back at the at the history of China, it really is kind of a story of, of, of a pretty amazing innovation. Can we also wonder today's coronavirus pandemic, which well started in China, will also change the world? Uh, that's interesting. I mean, that's obviously a huge amount of conversation going on about that right now. Um, and I think it, I think it will in many ways. I mean, I think it's from a purely economic standpoint, for example, I think it, it exposed some of the vulnerabilities that, that countries have by relying on production so far away of certain things that ended up being critical, like pharmaceuticals. Um, that could have an effect of kind of rejiggering where things are certain types of products are, are made and, and why, uh, which then of course could shift things like, you know, where jobs are and where things, where, where investment is, is being directed. Um, and I'm also kind of concerned on a bigger level that it's going to intensify a trend that we've already seen, which is this, this growing antagonism between between China and and the West and China and the U.S. specifically, uh, there's a lot of acrimony being right now between Washington and Beijing as they kind of uh, trade accusations over the pandemic and and the I think the Chinese response uh, has been uh, very uh, unfortunate, uh, very angry. Uh, uh, a search for for scapegoats to kind of deflect blame from China's role in this pandemic, uh, and you know you've already seen you've already seen the souring of relations between the world's two most powerful countries now going going for so you know for several years, and and I feel that this is this may accelerate accelerate it. And I don't really know where we go from here. I mean it's. It's not positive for the world to have the, the two most powerful countries uh, in, in becoming increasingly antagonistic. Uh, so that, that worries me about where, where this is going as well. Um, it's a really interesting um, and, as you say, worrying uh, thing to think about. Um, I'd, I'm not going to say who I think needs to keep their trap shut in order to make relations better between China and America. But um, lastly, let's, let's stay away from current politics. Lastly, <laughs> if you'd like to be different, tell us one way in which China could have changed the world and blew it. And blew it. Yeah. Well, what a lot of people don't know is that, is that uh, China had been incredibly advanced in shipbuilding and maritime technology. And uh, in the early 15th century, the new Ming Dynasty uh, decided it wanted to kind of assert, assert its power and, and influence across uh, Asia and across the Indian Ocean. And they sent out these fleets, called they called them treasure fleets, that were led by uh, uh, an admiral named Zheng He, 
And these were massive, massive fleets. I mean, in some cases, they were probably more than 200 ships. And the, 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 the treasure ships themselves were, many people believe, the largest wooden seafaring vessels ever, ever built. Um, and, these, uh, and these voyages also stretch tremendous distance all the way from the, you know, from the South China coast all the way to East Africa. And it's interesting to think about what would have happened if when the Portuguese rounded the Cape of Africa and ended up in the Indian Ocean, if these fleets were still sailing. The Ming Dynasty, for different reasons, after about 30 years, stopped sending these, these fleets out. And almost, honestly, the Chinese almost completely forgot about them. Uh, and so what would have happened if 50 years later these fleets were still sailing when the Portuguese found their way and how would world history have changed? Would the West have been able to dominate uh, Asian European trade in the way that they did? Would they have been able to enforce their political will on Asia in the way that the Western powers did? if you still had China asserting itself on the waters in the way that they were in the early 15th century. I mean, they, they missed each other by about 60 years. That's nothing so, in the scheme of things, is it? And which is nothing in the scheme of things. Yes. And, you know, the Chinese definitely had the resources and the wherewithal to continue to do this. But it's interesting, you know, China's political ideology was, was much more about people coming to them. They, they wanted people coming to China and giving tribute and, and acknowledging Chinese superiority. They didn't really often feel the need to go out and seek. So after this kind of brief uh, period, which was really an aberration in which the Chinese felt the need to actively go around the region and show off their power, um, after that period, they kind of, re, you know, retreated back into their kind of normal way of thinking about the world. And uh, so by the time Vasco da Gama ended up in the Indian Ocean in India, these, these voyages were a distant memory. It's just, it's, I love doing historical what-ifs, and I've never heard that one before. So um, I'm, I'm really, really um, mind-blowing um, to think that it could have all been so different. Um, you are writing a book at the moment and people are going to be really, I, I know people will be excited to hear more from you. So what is the book about? Uh, the book is called uh, superpower interrupted the Chinese history of the world. And the idea is to tell a kind of a world history through China's perspective and, and seeing how world events through China, through the prism of China, and from there, to better understand how the Chinese see the world today and what the Chinese think their role in the world should be today. Uh, and so it's, it's sort of a history of, of China's relations with the outside world and perception of the outside world. And from that, I mean, it, it's a lot of what, you know, one of the big questions that I think we have today is what does China want? Where is China going? As we were talking about earlier, the next 50, 100 years is going to be very much shaped by what happens with China. 
And the answer to the question has been somewhat elusive, right? For a while, people in, in Washington and the capitals of Europe thought that China was going to be a partner, that we were going to connect with China economically and culturally, and that was going to make China a partner. Now, in recent years, increasingly, especially in the U.S., China is being perceived as a geopolitical competitor and, and not a partner. Uh, so this idea of, well, what does China want has kind of been somewhat elusive. And a simple and admittedly overly simple, but one simple way of answering the question is that China wants what it always had. And the China's, percep China's perception of itself going back, you know, 2,500 years plus, okay, the, the Chinese always wrote about themselves as a superior civilization. That, that Chinese civilization was civilization. It defined civilization. And by definition, everybody else was, of course, not civilized. So from a very early period, the, the Chinese expected other peoples to acknowledge the superiority of China. And this has basically shaped Chinese relations with the outside world for almost its entire history, where China saw the world as a, as, as a hierarchy, that relationships were, were not equal, and that China was supposed to have, it, have its place at the top of this pyramid, which it considered to be its rightful place. And it always dealt with, with other countries on that basis. In, real, in the real world, it didn't always exactly work that way. Things were more equal and other societies were able to push back. It wasn't, you know, in the real world of kind of power politics, it didn't necessarily work always that way. But from an ideological standpoint, that's how, that's how the Chinese kind of saw the world. And that was often backed by real power. You know, for many, for long periods of time, uh, China was always the most dominant uh, society in any in in stage, politically and economically, definitely from a civilizational standpoint, sometimes from a military standpoint. So when, when, you, when you look at that history going back that long and you ask, okay, well, what, where is China going? To a great degree, I think that they, they, they kind of want to get back what they always feel that they had, which is this rightful, the, their rightful place at, you know, the top of global civilization. And when she, President Xi Jinping today talks about the Chinese dream, achieving the Chinese dream, it's a very vague concept when he talks about it. But you can almost see it as exactly that, a restoration uh, of, China, of the role that China always feels that it had and the role that China feels that it deserves in the world. Look, you had given us so much to think about um, with this overview of Chinese history. Um, and I cannot wait for this book to come out because I, I just think it's fascinating to actually just to have more of a global view than just the, the westernized one that we usually have of history. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. No, thanks so much for having me on. Really, really interesting. And uh, I appreciate it tremendously. And when is the book going to be out? Do you know yet? Uh, the book is out June 9th. June the 9th, this year. So it is done. Yes. Excellent. Okay. So uh, as of it, June. Well, no, it, it's, going to, it's going to print. Books is, I mean, I know you've written books. Books are never really done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they just have to eventually go to press.
Excellent. Okay, so this summer you will be able to get a hold of Michael's book and no doubt Michael will pick it up and see about 50 things he will want to change as soon as he sees the finished copy because that's just the way us authors roll. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Join us tomorrow when... Oh, God help us. We are launching a little bit of initiative uh, aimed at oral history here at History Hack. Um, and we're going to kick it off with an interview with uh, Peter Hart. It's a mashup with Peter Hart's Military History Podcast. Uh, Gary Bain will be joining us as well. And we're going to be talking about how you can use oral history, um, the pitfalls, uh, what you should be careful of um, and what it can bring to your research. Uh, it's a really good, I think, in amongst the madness, a really good lesson on um historical sources and how to use them so uh, really useful for budding historians we will also have a poll position which this week it's alina's turn so she will be talking about the first mass transport to auschwitz in 1940 and um then down the pub this week we thought we'd go and a little bit sporty and we're doing uh, historical fantasy football we've got uh, a pile of experts and guests uh, and a, and a comment bbc commentator as well um, and we're going to debate basically uh, putting together the greatest football team of all time while uh, we have a few drinks and uh, basically act like idiots so join us for that too until then stay safe if you possibly can stay at home and uh, this is nighthawk signing off imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with bowl and branches organic cotton sheets in a recent customer survey 96 percent replied that bowl and branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15 percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.